Hello and welcome to the Pastcast. I'm Callum Henderson. My guests this week are two curators from the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, which has recently opened a new exhibition called Gold and the Great Steppe. It looks at the Saka, a nomadic people from eastern Kazakhstan, who lived around 2,500 years ago. To accompany the exhibition, curators Rebecca Roberts and Saltana Amir have written an article in the latest issue of Minerva magazine. You can also read it online at the past website. Their article begins by describing the recently excavated burial tomb of two Saka teenagers, from which many of the riches in this exhibition originated. To begin the interview, I asked Saltanat what we knew about the two figures in this burial mound. Um, thank you for this question. First of all, I just would like to stress out how important the um, uh, this find was, because um, because the finding of uh, almost untouched and undooted early Saka burial is uh, is the is the is the second of this kind in in the whole region. The first one was a very famous Arjan II, which was found absolutely intact. It, it was also double inhumation burial. But um, in um, in comparison with Arjan II, um, this burial was a burial of a very young um, man and woman. They were actually teenagers. She was about 13, 14 years old, and he was about 18, 17, 18. Um, what we know is that... Um, According to the ancient DNA analysis, they most probably were um, very close um, relatives, so they have the the same mitochondrial DNA, and uh, it's quite probable that that were siblings. They were brother and sister. Also, um, one of the interesting um, peculiarity of this burial is that their long bones have been perforated of this girl and this boy. Uh, we do not know exactly for what purpose for. Um, uh, however, it is not the unique feature. So there, 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 there are uh, a few other um, burials of early and uh, of early Saka and Saka burials which had also the perforation of the bones. Um, but either it was for, um, as local archaeologists uh, suggest, that for if they have been done for embalmment or probably just to what I think that were used to for pinning the body to the um, some kind of a desk, uh, wooden desk, but we do not know exactly. Um, this is also was one of the peculiarities of the burial. And I think that another um, another striking fact that that actually we do not know what this girl has um, uh, has as her burial, burial object, but it seems that in com- just comparing what the boy has, most probably uh, her burial was as rich as he as his. Um, but taking into account that he has this cent- that, that she was buried in the central part of the of the of the Kurgan, probably it was even richer. Um, yeah, and I think that also it is important to understand that 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 how many gold was used to to bury with these two teenagers, and it's really it's really interesting. Yeah, so, so to add to what Saltanat said, um, what's incredible about about the Kurgan Four burial mound itself um, is is what it sh- the story it tells us about um, the role of chance and human action in in archaeology and the types of information that become available to us. So while the the girl in the burial mound was quite violently looted and and her bones were scattered and and she was stripped of of nearly all of her grave goods um 
by complete chance, um, a collapse of the partial collapse of the burial chamber um, protected the, the 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 boy, the the teenager, from the view of the looters, and and he was completely preserved um, in 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 an untouched burial. And it's it's just amazing to see the sort of the fate of these two burials within a single mound, um, and 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 this is typical for. Um, so many burials, or nearly all the burials that we find um, from the Saka period, because they have been looted. And looting is a problem that started probably not long after um, burial. We have evidence that uh, some some graves were actually looted very shortly after they were buried. But it's something that has continued throughout time. There was a peak of looting in the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, but it still continues uh, to this day. And we've lost so much information. Um, and, and it really makes you think about, you know, how are we making our interpretations? What what are the what's the basis and the information we've had and, and how much have we actually lost over time? Yeah, thanks. Um, it has, you know, all of this stuff that's been looted, has any of that ever been recovered or has it all been lost? Well, the, the the looting story. I mean, so so the looting in the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries. Um, much of that ended up um, in St Petersburg in the Hermitage collections, um, and and was collected during um, Russian imperial um, expansion. Um, and local people would loot burial mounds, and and um, things arrived were then collected without context. So, I think that's another thing that's really special about um, our exhibition and 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 the excavations in general is that we have this wonderful context for all of the finds, um, and we know exactly where they came from. Um, we, we know um, the burial where they were in the burial mound, but also the relationship of that burial mound to another one. Um, and it's that loss loss of context for all the other, all the other artifacts that have been looted that um, just you know. They, they may be very beautiful, they are incredibly beautiful items, but so much information about them is lost by the fact that we don't know their context. Um, and, the, you know, for, for things that get that have been recently looted as well, we just don't know where they're going, you know, and, and we've lost, lost that context, we've lost all of that information. Um, and... Um, for all the artifacts themselves just um you know their value lies not only in their beauty in the fact that they are gold but also that vast wealth of archaeological information that we that we can extract from them if they are you know carefully and properly excavated it's probably right that we talk a bit more about the artifacts themselves can you tell me a bit about what was found within the the burial mound Rebecca has already mentioned for from the girls' burial, we have uh, only one small woven tablet made of bone, and this is one of the stars of the show, and this is the final, um, so some kind of a closing artifact that you can see on the exhibition, a very, um, I can say, very fragile and very beautiful piece. Um, but from these uh, boys... Um, Daryl, we have uh, um, everything with him, and the high and then the and the heaviest artifact is the um, golden torque, which um, weighs about more than three hundred grams, and most probably uh, it was used during the lifetime because there are evidence of of wear and tear. So uh, probably it was it was it has not been manufactured only for the burial purposes. 
Um, it was made uh, of um, solid um, gold, which was hammered and then twisted. Another star of the show is the uh, gold scabbard and decorated by granulation and um, inlays with um, turquoise and lapis lazuli. Um, the same technique, um, have, uh, techniques have been used for production of pear-shaped uh, decoration plaque uh, of the garitas, which is a bow, case, bow, bow case, and the long plaque, um, as well as long plaque, also gold made, as well as a few, um, as well as a few um, gold plaques in form of uh, deers. So I think that they are the um, um, the main artifacts, which are the the largest and the, I think the most beautiful out of these um, um, of this burial. But others are which are really um, probably striking ones are two hinges, which were used to fix both the garitas and the scabbard, um, and um, a small uh, bronze mirror. Yeah, I, I think um, it was also worth mentioning the um, the, the bronze uh, hinged weapons belt attachments um, that were found. So there are two um, small bronze um, pieces which look um, a bit like a horse's bit. They have this interlocking cent central ring joint, um, which is still functional after 2,700 years. It's quite a beautiful and a beautiful piece of engineering. Um, and these pieces were found one on each side of, of, of the teenager's hips. And they, it's quite easy to overlook them when, in, when you're looking at the items from the burial, which are all, you know, wonderful gold and, and, and pieces. But these two little hinged attachments um, tell a really interesting story because one end um, of them fits absolutely perfectly into the um, round hole that, that's on the um, end of the scabbard. Um, and and th so it's it, what these were were little attachments for weapons. So you put one end onto the onto the weapon would attach, and the other end would go onto a belt. And what these tell us is not only that the sucker were incredibly skilled in bronze working um, and 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 the sort of technical production of bronze, but also the importance of horses and horse riding to the sucker people because this little interlocking joint was designed to absorb the movement of a weapon while while the uh, while you were riding on horseback so to prevent it from banging against um your leg as you're riding this actually acts as a sort of um shock absorber um and 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 and, and prevents that movement so it's they're tiny they're quite small little pieces but they just tell this wonderful story and give us this wonderful information when you take a closer look at them I was going to ask if you could tell me a bit more about the the Saka people in general and what these objects sort of tell us about them, because as you mentioned, they are the, a very important connection with uh, the animal world. And um, so, so yes, the uh, so the objects themselves really um, give us information on on many levels, but sort of firstly, we can we can look at the form of them and, and what's being shown. So the animals that are being depicted, um, the way that they're laid out together, <clears throat> which objects are, are shown um, and used with each other. And then we have um, the next level, which is when we take a closer look um, 
you know, behind the scenes, as it were, even simply as as simple as turning it over to look at the back of it. But also when we start to look at them more closely, for example, through the microscope and we and, and start to get this sort of detailed information about how they were made and the types of materials that were used. So and, and these are two things that we're really exploring um, both in the exhibition, um, but also ongoing an ongoing research project. So um, Saltanat is um, currently in her second year of her PhD and she's studying this material. Um, for for her PhD research and will be doing so for at least the next two years and, and quite possibly for many, many years afterwards. Um, so we have all of these wonderful, um, all this wonderful new information that's waiting to be discovered. Um, but it's possible to say, I mean, initially from from just the form of the object. So most of these pieces um, that that uh, that have been discovered were made to be worn in some way. So they were either designed to be sewn onto clothing, um, or they were decorating weapons, um, uh, or they were made to um, uh, decorate horse harnesses. So they're all pieces designed to be worn. And we know that they were designed to be sewn onto clothing because on the back, um, there are little uh, sewing loops on the back of many of these pieces, for example, clothing plaques. And so you may see the the, the, um, uh, uh, multiple pieces that we have in the exhibition. And and for some of them, um, we've we've got them actually shown on their back in the exhibition. So you can actually have a look behind and and see these little um, sewing loops. And uh, in terms of the form and what's being shown, um, so most of the um, decorations, most of the objects are showing animals. For the most part, they're actually wild animals. Um, So domesticated animals, horses and people um, are less commonly shown. It's mostly wild animals. So we see things such as um, high mountain animals like the ibex, the mountain goats, the argali, which is a wild mountain sheep with these wonderful big horns. Um, We see fish. We see, of course, the deer, which which you may have seen on our poster, um, beautifully depicted deer. Um, and also predators like uh, we see it have a wonderful wolf head um, and then these feline predators. So possibly snow leopards or, and tigers. Um, and this relationship between predator and prey seems to be really important um, to the sucker. And we see it in the art, um, this sort of tension between predator and prey. And, and that's kind of energy in the way that that's depicted um, through the art and um, perhaps implying um, you know, some kind of uh, social organisation or, or, or they could be, you know, telling us a, a mythological tale or, or a religious um, tale, um, which unfortunately we, we, we may never know the true meaning behind it. But I think by looking at those relationships between what's being depicted, we can start to understand the way in which the Saka organised their world. But it's really important to say as well that um, <clears throat> while the animals, everything is, is organised and, and shown in, in very specific ways, but also depicted in such a sympathetic way and, and showing such a um, close observation of nature. So the Saka were some of the earliest people um, to depict animals using what's known as the animal style of art, which is found um, across the across the Scythian world. And, and the Saka are one of the um, 
Scythian cult- cultures and some of the early, earliest creators of, of this um, Scythian culture. And the animal style is um, a way of showing animals often in um, quite stylized ways, so often with legs folded underneath and heads turned back um, and, and can look, um, you know, almost almost unnatural in, in some of their poses. But when you take a closer look, you start to realise how sympathetically things like muscles and eyes and ears and, and details of these animals have actually been depicted. Um, so it's this wonderful um, contrast between a deep observation of nature on the one hand, and then this um, quite formalised, stylized, ordered way um, of 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 arranging animals and 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 how they're depicted. I would like also to add about um, about one of the findings in this teenager burial, which is, uh, from my point of view, is very very important. This is the microbits uh, which uh, were found on the um, on the um, around the around the feet of the of this teenager. About seventeen hundred pieces um, were unearthed, and uh, they were used to decorate his shoes. Um, seven, uh, the, the total weight of these microbits of, of all this 1700 is about 21 grams. Um, and their lens is less than one millimeter. So, um, please do not overlook these, these tiny, tiny piece of art. They're very, they're very unique and very distinctive for this, for this, for the Saka culture. And the second, uh, now I can say about a bit of the, about the Saka people. Yeah, at the moment, the Saka people consider it as the, um, uh, as the earliest, um, as the earliest population of this in the Pan-Scythian world and um, um, in the whole region, because the earliest um, sites, the earliest corgans or burial mounds, uh, which are known at the moment, are dated as uh, early as the 9th century BC. Um, they are the Saka uh, corgans, for example, Arjan one, uh, or uh, for example, the Shilikti, the, the Shilikti corgans, which uh, we present also in this exhibition. So it is it is just um, very important to understand that the prob that the most probably this first um, uh, explosion of this culture, which is called the Pan-Scythian culture, right, uh, uh, of the whole region that actually prevailed during the whole the, during the whole millennium uh, um, or the Iron Age at this uh, at this region is uh, has happened actually in the Altai Mountains, also in this Western Siberia. We've touched on it a little bit already. Um, I, I would be interested to know, you know, the expression is called uh, gold in the Great Steppe. I was wondering what the landscape and the environment and the life was like for these people on the Great Steppe. Do you think you could tell me a bit more about that? Um, yes, I think that um, let's start um, first of all from the um, the term itself. And for example, if we're talking about this uh, Eurasian Steppe Belt, it includes, it can be um, divided into um, very generally, it could be divided to to three parts. It is the uh, um, Black Sea Steppe region, the Central or Kazakh Steppes, and the Mongolian or Eastern Steppes. If we're talking about the um, these these cultures that occupied this territory during the first millennium BC, we know uh, for sure that they that have been genetically and culturally connected. Um, at the same time, um, I think that they were not identical. They were, they were, they, they were different. And, um, in general, I think that it is also, um, it is also very important to understand that even if we're talking about the great step, it is not one, uh, just, um, environmental, uh, zone. It, it's, 
because it includes, for example, plain areas, it includes mountainous areas, uh, also the um, fertile river valleys, deserts, taiga, everything. So we um, understand now that how complex, how complex was the lifestyle of these people, how different they were. So they were nomadic people, sedentary population, so semi-sedentary, uh, so everything, absolutely everything in these areas. And um, I think that one of the very important points now um, in the steppe archaeology in general is the, um, that we start exploration of the settlements, of Saka settlements, and not only Saka, but, but the Scythians and Sarmatians and so on. And these, um, in, um, this direction of the archaeological research um, has been uh, developing only for the last 20, 30 years. So it is quite new because for eight, for, for centuries, only the burials or kurgan, as we uh, call them, have been uh, excavated because they were so um, visible and so rewarding to find a lot of gold work, gold, gold, uh, gold objects. So only uh, during the last, um, as I mentioned already, 20, 30 years, we started to um, to to find settlements and um, and I think it breaks this this narrative of purely nomadic population that occupied these territories. They were not only nomadic, and also on the exhibition we showed that a lot of um, um, agriculture and um, um, medical or medicine plants have been known. Also, we see the metallurgy, so they were aware and uh, about the um, about the mineral resources that were available in the region. So uh, we should look at this culture as a very complex and very sophisticated way of lifestyle that, at the same time, was very, um, I can say, uh, environmentally friendly and hmm. environmentally um, flexible. Let's 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 use this way. Yeah, and I think um, to, to add to that, um, particularly in the East Kazakhstan region, um, so East Kazakhstan is, is uh, bordered um, by mountains. So we have the Altai Mountains um, to the east and the, to, and the north, um, and then sort of lower mountain ranges, for example, the Tarbagatai Range, um, which um, then leads down um, it, it eventually um into the Tian Shan, um, and which is also part of the Pamir Knot, so it's sort of and, and the Himalayan ranges. So we're part of this huge kind of central Eurasian uh, mountain ranges, um, and and these these mountains are really important. Um, for the region, um, not least because of their relationship to uh, the plains and the foothills and the variety of that landscape. So the Saka were um, occupying a land of, of real contrasts and um, different ecological zones. And, and what Salsanat has been saying about this complexity um, and, and what we're understanding really is that the Saka were um, exploiting and I use exploiting in, in their sort of sense of um, you know getting the most out of the landscape they lived in so they're exploiting this landscape in really sophisticated ways and we've mentioned um, nomadism and pastoral nomadism so moving uh, using herds of, uh, of animals such as sheep and goat and horses um, and moving them around seasonally between the best pastures um, now that th this was a sort of subsistence strategy that um, really was 
was in, it sort of developed um, during at the beginning of the first millennium BC, and it endures until today. So there are pastoral nomadic populations because it's an extremely efficient way of using this um, varied uh, landscape, um, and particularly this relationship between the mountains, the foothills, the plains. Um, but as Salsana has mentioned, we also now more recent research is showing that there were also settled parts of the population um, who were um, living at least part of the year round, if not year round, um, in settlements um, and and, and um, put, engaging in uh, cultivation of plant resources as well. Um, and and. And also, as Salsana has also said about these, um, to pick up on the plant use, um, so we know that the Saka had a, a deep knowledge of this natural medicine cabinet that they had around them, um, of the hundreds of different plant species which are available within the region. And we have one burial um, from um, uh, Urjar, which is um, towards the, the, the south of East Kazakhstan. And this was a, a woman and who she was buried in with an, a wonderful gold headdress, really beautiful with this sort of mythical bird um, uh, uh, figure and, 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 and stylized ferns depicted in gold. But she was also buried with a variety of different medicinal herbs, um, things like ferns that have an anti-inflammatory pop properties she had cannabis seeds um, buried with her um, and and a variety of other um, herbs together with a mortar um, that would have been used for grinding them and various vessels so we know that the saka um, also had a deep relationship with with the plants around them as well as with the animals um, and Recent excavations have also shown uh, that they were grinding um, grain of some kind. At the moment, we are in the very earliest stages of determining whether it was domesticated or um, wild grains that they were collecting. But we know from the southeast of Kazakhstan, from a, a settlement of a slightly later Saka period, that they were cultivating um, wheat, barley and millets. Um, so the closer we look and the more research that's that's being conducted, we're just getting this incredible view of this w wide variety of activities. And, and I think that, that, you know, it's fair to say that it was sustainable um, as a society. You know, we're talking about a period from um, around 900 BC to around 200 BC that, you know, the Saka people in, endured for, for, for this incredibly long period before um, new, new people came in and they were displaced and, and, and new populations and things. But, um, you know, it's, it's a really long period of um, activity and landscape use over time. Just can I add, um, add also to just one addition from my side about the importance of these people, not only for the steppe region, but, but also for such countries and territories as northern India as Pakistan as Afghanistan because in their later stages they um as 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 also um Rebecca mentioned they were forced to migrate to to more to Central Asia and to India because of the um um probably because of the um, migration of of Huns from uh, from Siberia and Mongolia and we know that the uh, conquered Part of the uh, um, part of the Afghanistan and and uh, northern uh, India and Pakistan and 
their influence there culturally and even uh, linguistically was, was substantial because, for example, uh, Pakistani people they, they, uh, from the northern Pakistan, they really think that Pushtu language is a, is a Sakha language. So it, it is interesting that, that, that how, how different and how influential were these, these people. Also, uh, some northern Indian um, mythology and some, some people really think that these Aryans were connected to the Saka people also, as well as the uh, spread of the Indo-European languages are closely also connected to the Saka and the, and the whole the Pan-Scythian world. You know, you said research will be ongoing during the exhibition. Do you think there's anything else to add about what else you're hoping to learn during your PhD? Uh, we are going to, because part, this is, um, I can just stress out that, that this is a big research project uh, and a collaboration between the Fitzwilliam and, um, and, the, and the Department of Archaeology of the University of Cambridge about the research of the materials um, exhibited, but not only the... Um, of different types, not only, for example, the metals, and but also we include the uh, research of organic materials. For example, we're going to take samples and understand what kind of species um, uh, were used to produce, for example, the uh, garita, the leather of garitas, or these uh, horn objects uh, that were used for decoration of the horses. So, uh, or for example, the fur coat, what, what, what kind of fur, um, was used. So this is the combination or cross craft, um, research that also includes the, uh, for example, the chemical composition in, in manufacturing technologies of gold and other metal objects, as well as the, as well as the, um, organic materials. So it is very important and we're going to do it during the exhibition and, and hopefully we'll have a bit of time after the exhibition to to undertake this research. Yeah, and in addition to that, um, the, all of this material is um, part of ongoing um, an ongoing large-scale um, research project in the East Kazakhstan region. And, you know, we've been working um, incredibly closely with our colleagues in East Kazakhstan, both the East Kazakhstan Regional Museum of Local History um, and um, the two um, leading archaeologists in the region, um, Professor uh, Zainola Samashev and Professor Abdesh uh, Tolibayev. And their excavations are, are still ongoing. So some of the material in this exhibition was, was only excavated in 2020. Um, and, and it, you know, it's, it's so exciting to have it here um, so soon after excavation, but it's also part of, you know, the, the excavations are ongoing. So this year, you know, new things have already been discovered in 2021. Um, and, and in the coming field seasons, there'll be a more focus on the settlement excavation of the settlements, but also kind of looking beyond the burial mounds to look for other areas of, act of activity from the Saka period, things like um, you know, furnaces and, and hards and metalworking, um, uh, sort of, you know, and, and really adding to that story of all the different economic activities. And we're continuing to collaborate um, with our colleagues um, in Kazakhstan to um, support um, their research, um, and, and we'll be publishing together um, the results. So it's 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 exciting that we, you know, it really is brand new information that we are all working on together. But also important to emphasise that you know this is 
Kazakhstani research. It's funded, um, you know, through East Kazakhstan. The excavations are funded by the East Kazakhstan government. It's all archaeologists from Kazakhstan who are conducting the excavations. Um, and it's just a great privilege um, to in Cambridge that we are able to use um, some of our fantastic equipment to take a closer look at these items as well. Just leaves me to say um, best of luck with the, the exhibition. I hope it continues to attract a lot of attention. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. Yes, the exhibition is open until the 30th of January. Um, it's completely free to visit, um, but you just need to book a ticket online. Um, and we also have our catalogue available, um, which goes into detail about the excavation um, and it also has some really wonderful photographs of the objects as well. That was Rebecca Roberts speaking to me there, along with her colleague Saltana Amir. Don't forget that you can read their article in full on the past website now. That's all for this week. Thanks to my two guests, Rebecca and Saltana, and to you for listening. We hope you'll join us again soon. <laughs>